You're listening to the Substandard Model. What is greater than God? More evil than the devil. The poor have it, the rich need it. If you eat it, you will die. Nothing. Nothing. What you're about to hear is the first part of a two-part series about nothing. Nothing, or no thing, is the complete absence of anything, the opposite of everything. The concept of nothing has been a matter of philosophical debate since at least the 5th century BC. Early Greek philosophers argued that it was impossible for nothing to exist. And they were right. The vacuum is full. Doesn't that just scare you half to death? All of time and space, forever and always, has been boiling away like maggots under your bin. There is no refuge, no escape, no solace. From corner to wall to boundary, the universe is chock-a-block. So where does it come from? What's happening in the darkness? Can empty space imagine things? Nothing is nothing. I'm trying to find the paper, the original paper which proposed this by Kay Scharnhorst. Do you know who Kay Scharnhorst is? Do you know what the Scharnhorst is? The Scharnhorst. The Scharnhorst was um, oh no, wait, one of the larger friends? battleships oh, no, by the Nazis in World War II. Really? So yeah, all my this respect thing. to Kay Scharnhorst. How's how how are they doing? Kay Scharnhorst. Uh, they, Kay Scharnhorst. Kay Scharnhorst. Kay Scharnhorst. I think they're doing pretty good. Basically, I was going to talk about the Casimir effect, Henry. The Casino effect. The Casimir effect, which you know about, I presume. Casimir. Casimir. Oh my god! Please tell me you don't know what that is. Oh god. Henry, do you not know I what the Casimir? Oh my god. Oh my god. It's happened. This is the best day of my life. Henry, this is going to blow your mind. Henry, I've had this fact in the tank for like literally years of years, like honestly years, but I just, just I never bothered to tell you. You're going to love this. Okay. Well, I've you're going to, you're going to love this. Yeah, I didn't know what it was from the name. But yeah. How do you know what it is now? I didn't really look at it, but I saw that it was a quantum thing, and I was it's like, "Okay, I'll just thing. let him do his, let him have his fun time." I'm gonna have, yeah, that's that's true, that's true. I'm just gonna. Well, I will check. warn you. We may discover halfway through that I do, in fact, know what this is. But if in that case, I assume you'll have the good manners to shut your fucking mouth and not say anything because <laughs> so much more interesting. Oh my god, what is the Casimir effect? That sounds like something from Star Wars. It does, really does. Okay, so. Let's start at the beginning. Um, would you mind explaining to our adoring fans what the quantum foam is? The quantum foam. Yeah, I love the quantum foam. The quantum foam, I suppose, is just, it's a foam that fills in uh, what we think is evacuated space. So empty space is, in fact, not empty. Mm-hmm. Make a vacuum, it's not empty. It's got little particles that pop in and out of existence. Um, they'll pop into existence and then they'll annihilate with each other. But, you know, they're there for a period of time. Um, 
And that's allowed because of Heisenberg's uncertainty principle in that you can have an uncertainty in how much energy and because energy is mass and, and how much particles you have in a certain space, just as long as you have it for a short enough time. Yeah, I like that. So I tried to explain this to someone recently, and I think the best, the thing I landed upon that made the most sense is like, if you think about Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, which is like, you know, you can't be 100% sure of the position of a, a quantum particle, and you can't be 100% sure about its momentum at the same time. You can pick one, or you can pick, like, you can be sort of have an idea about both, but you can't be 100% sure about both of those properties about the same thing. Like, just that's how math is. And then a clever person might come might come up to me, and they, they might say, okay, well, I've thought on an example where you do know both of those for sure. You 100% know both of those values. What if there's nothing there? What if there's no particle? And you 100% know there's no position. You 100% know there's no momentum. Because, like, obviously, there's nothing there. Checkmate. Heisenberg is wrong. I have figured out a case where you definitely know both of those values. And then Heisenberg comes back. And Heisenberg says, no, even if there's nothing there, you actually can't be sure of that. Like, it's, it's you can say... I'm a hundred, you can't say I'm a hundred percent sure that there's no position and no momentum because you can never say that you're a hundred percent sure there's nothing there because that's still how maths works. So basically the universe has some like wiggle room as to whether there is a photon there or not. And then this, this kind of works with any quantum particle because you can't be certain that there's nothing there. So it's possible that hypothetically there might be something with a position and a momentum. Because you can't be certain that both of those values are zero. Okay, and because in quantum, we work with wave functions and wave functions move around and do those kind of things. But what a wave function really is, is just a, a, a way of visualizing probability. Yeah, more or less. And because it's become possible now that a photon could be there, even if you thought there was nothing there, that there's a wiggle room that it, you know there could be a photon. Yeah. Because that's essentially what a wave function is. Exactly. It's safe to say, actually there is a photon there. Yeah, like the second it becomes possible that it's there, a photon is technically just the possibility of a photon. That's yeah. how, that's really what photons are. Then once it's possible, they become there. But to be fair, these aren't like the real, these aren't like super real photons, they're like virtual photons. Like, they're not, they're not like, it's not like, a, it's, not, this, it's like you might be like, how come the vacuum isn't super bright all the time? And it's like, yeah, these are, okay, okay, fair enough. These aren't like genuine, super duper real photons. Well, way, one way I had it described to me was that if you imagine like the photon field, if you imagine like a big, you know. What's a, a photon big, field, Sam? <laughs> shut up, Henry. If you, okay, fine. Quantum field theory. If you, uh, It basically says that instead of saying there's an electron there and an electron there, you imagine that the whole like of everything is like a big spreadsheet. And there's like some places the sheet is like zero and some places it's one. You can imagine the field as like a sort of three-dimensional uh, field. And it, it, it's the, a soup the, of electronness. And if yeah, you've got more like electronness certain, in one area, then it's likely that that's an electron. And if you've got more electronness in another area. I think unless you're really going into it, it's just a bit silly to explain because it's like saying, Imagine if the whole world was a place where there might be electrons and there might not be electrons. Which you is heard like, the one electron theory. Oh no, you did. You did tell me about it. Is it just like there's one? There's only one electron, and it's just like jumping around everywhere. It's jumping around, and it's doing everyone's <laughs> electronness all the time. Yeah. 
just like the hardest working being in the universe. Like I, I like the idea that the probability of something happening in itself can form it. Yeah, the probability of something existing means it does exist in this ethereal time. Yeah, uh, which I think was, applies well to virtual particles in this case, and electrons and wave functions and stuff. It helps you understand that, I guess, right? Yeah. Um. So I'm going to try and move on with the with the quantum foam. I think an idea of it. Basically. Well, a nice way to think about it is in the vacuum where there's nothing and there's no matter, space still isn't a hundred percent sure of the, that it's that it's completely empty. And there's occasional things that pop in and out of existence for a few seconds. You know, that's just we just got to accept that. And that means the vacuum has an energy, and that means the vacuum has associated. It even technically has like associated matter and associated stuff like that. Like it has spin. It has all these properties associated with just empty space hmm. which is kind of cool and there's something you can do with that this has been known for a long time uh in 1948 it was first demonstrated by the dutch physicist henrik casimir basically if you if you say okay let's say there are all these particles which carry energy and can carry force that are constantly floating around in the universe is there any way we can theoretically harness this energy to do something and Henrik Casimir, he basically said, right, let's get a couple of metal plates. Okay. And I, I'm gonna I'm gonna make these really small, really thin metal plates. I'm gonna put them really, 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 really close together. Okay. And when I say close together, I mean really like they're gonna be so close together that in between those metal plates, there is a tiny gap, a space. It's like Armstrong's wire. It's like barely even like there. It's barely even there, but it's measurable. It is there. And this space between the metal plates, if if we're assuming that everything else is a vacuum, you've put this inside a vacuum that you've created. The problem is, inside the metal plates, you have discrete modes of vacuum energy. And what that means, I'm going to explain this in like a simple way and then maybe a more correct way. But what that means is that if you're a photon or a random part, virtual particle that decides it exists for a moment and then doesn't, because there's actually a lot of atoms around you and there's not a lot of space and there's a lot of places where you can interact, you're actually not as likely to be there. Because the problem, one of the things with quantum physics is that if you interact with something, suddenly you kind of have to decide whether you exist or not. Like often you become decohered and the possibility of all of these random particles that might have been there suddenly they they might they can't be there anymore because they're sort of trapped by these interacting atoms that are so close to each other. And that means that in between these two plates, there's actually less vacuum energy. The vacuum energy is slightly less because there's just basically less space for virtual particles. And if you think about it as a wave, what you need is you need these you need this wave to have a certain wave function and these wave well you need this wave to have a certain um wavelength sorry it's to have a certain period right and these periods kind of have to be complete you can't have like a semi-complete period and there's only a discrete number of them that can exist and that's that's what that's why it's quantized so if you imagine it as like a wiggly wave outside of this in this open space you can have as many many different um periods as you want that can go on forever and there's loads of different possible energies that you can have but inside this wall you suddenly got two constraints you've got two boundaries 
this period has to exist within these two boundaries of the wall. And suddenly you're only confined to like two, four, six, eight, you know, very specific discrete periods. Whereas outside, those could be continuous. That's one way of thinking about it. But another way of thinking about it is just there's less possible photons inside the plates. Anyway. Can I? I, Yes. I'm not going to like call you out. I'm just interested. (laughs) (laughs) Is there a 0% chance that these photons can be found on the boundary of the walls? Yeah, I don't think you can make a virtual photon like inside an atom because it just fucks up. It just like has to interact. So with they it. can't they can't be found on the walls. No, I don't think they they're there from the vacuum. I think so. The, so well, I'm just thinking what the shape of this wave function looks like. It's not to do with the. Oh, this is so fucking dope! If this is a quantum thing as well, okay, I can explain modes much easier. All right. Let me explain modes because if we did the, it was in the wave module that we did this. I didn't want to go too far. I didn't want to go too far away from. Yeah, but a nice way of doing it. Can I just do a little analogy? Yeah, yeah, do, do, some, do some analogies. Modes are different allowable wavelengths for a particular wave in a confined space. Yeah. So I, I want to basically explain this using a violin or a guitar or something like that. Oh, nice, nice. I know. Because the one defining fun. part about those is that the string is between two fixed points. Mm-hmm. And because the points are fixed, as in the string is tied to two ends of the guitar or whatever, yeah. those the wave can't vibrate at the point where it's fixed. Yeah, like it can't move up and down on the knot. The knot is sealed in place, right? It mm-hmm. can move up and down all the way along the string, apart from at the knot. And actually, when you create a standing wave, because the waves reflect on the knot, you get a you get a zero amplitude on the knot. Yeah, so it's a standing And wave. you get a zero amplitude on the other knot. If you only have one knot, then that's fine because you can have any sort of vibrational wavelength and it can just vibrate off into the end of the string, right? You've only confined it to one knot. If you confine it to two ends for a two-dimensional wave, mm-hmm. suddenly you've only got an allowable number of frequencies because if we think of what a wavelength is, in a wavelength, you 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 have a crest, which is where the wave gets really, really high and big. And then it will have a trough where the wave then gets really, really low. Think of like water waves. They go up and down and up and down, right? Yeah. What you can have is you can have a wave where it's symmetrical and it goes up and down in the middle of the string. That means that's the largest wavelength you can achieve. Yeah. Because you have the two ends are fixed and it will go up and down in the middle whilst the two ends are fixed. Yeah. The second one up from that is you can actually have two crest and troughs which mm-hmm. go up in opposite from each other, like uh, kids bouncing on a trampoline. Yeah. Um, and, it, and that means that you get a stationary point on the string in the middle. But you can keep going up. You can get three crests and troughs, which then go up in tandem, and they have two t- stationary points a third of the way along, mm-hmm. um, as well as the edges, and then four, and then five, and then six. But actually, you're confined so that you can't have any wavelengths that aren't uh, integer multiples or factors of the length of your string between these two fixed points. Exactly. And I think with the Casimir effect, what it's saying is the photons, their mm-hmm. wave function or the probability of where they're situated can only be found when the wavelength of the wave function is an integer multiple or factor of the l- distance between the two metal plates. Yes, exactly. Like there are, So there are some... Type there basically they, the way they put it 
is there are selected vacuum field modes. So They're harmonics, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They have that basically. Um, but I mean, I think this might be a bit of a simplified picture. But um, out, so outside of the two plates, there's no there's no two restricted points. You can have whatever mode you want. I.e., your wave function can be vibrating in any wavelength, any wavelength you really want. Which means there's a whole extra possibility, the whole whole new space of possibilities where virtual photons can exist. But inside this inside this uh, this plate space, because there's these constraints where on either side the atoms will fuck up the virtual photons, and you can't really mess with that. That acts as the you know the pin and the base on the guitar string. That acts as the two points which which define it and the two points which can confine it. So therefore, you can only have a discrete number of wavelengths within that. Like you can have a selected selected from the full space of possible wavelengths. There are only a few which are allowed, which essentially means there's just less vacuum energy. There's less virtual photons because less of them are possible. Really? Do you not? Yeah. It's a bit like the photoelectric effect, though, where it's like. Um let's say we're trying to heat up a surface by illuminating it with light. You mm-hmm. fire loads of photons at it. Or, or so we're trying to free electrons off a metal surface. The yeah. photoelectric effect is where if you shine light on a metal surface, sometimes the electrons absorb the energy of the light and they separate themselves from the metal surface. Um, mm-hmm. And we thought, okay, well, if I use low energy light, can I use, or really large wavelength light, can I use lots and lots of it, high intensity? So lots and lots of photons of low energy light. And eventually I'll fill up the cup of energy required to liberate an electron and electrons will start coming off. It'll just take longer and more photons. Yeah. And then if I use high energy light, I can use a couple and it'll probably liberate the electron just like that. But actually what you find is you get a discrete number of wavelengths, which are okay mm. for liberating electrons. I'm wondering if in this situation... Does quantity, can you not just have more photons of a specific wavelength that will just sort of even out to the same amount of uncertainty and energy compared to, like, it, so why, why would, why would it be an out? even distribution? But why wouldn't it? Like, why would that evening out, What, what what's causing that evening out to happen? Well, what I think there's, there's a chance for, okay, you've got a chance for one joule of energy to last here for four seconds. Mm-hmm. in line with the heisenberg uncertainty principle okay now you can find the space because you put the two metals plates which means you have the two uh nodes which are restricted in motion so you can only have a discrete number of quantum wave function wavelengths so now you can only have five or six or seven or eight different types of photons i mean i i i don't really know what to say other than just it doesn't happen that way uh it's really curious though cause... because because there is less possible occupiable wavelength maybe it's to do with the exclusion principle somehow but because there's less occupiable wavelengths you simply just have less less um less virtual photons in, in that space and then you it's you can think about it like every virtual photon that part that's possible every virtual fermion every virtual whatever kind of has like is is exerting a net force on these objects like a vacuum pressure almost like and it's like just from bumping into them or like tiny interactions tiny tiny barely perceptible forces which are being exerted by these random particles that fly around everywhere just by popping in and out of existence and and you can imagine that just because there's literally less less of them possible inside of the space you're getting less you're getting less bumping you're getting less of a vacuum pressure and the way they actually describe it when they're explaining it is it's literally like a pressure difference 
Like that's uh, mad. So what happens, Henry, in the Casimir effect, is the two plates squash together. That's really crazy. When you put the plates closer and closer together, it gets to a point where the vacuum pressure, the, the vacuum energy inside gets restricted because you have selected vacuum modes. That means there's less bumping, there's less pressure. It's like it's being sucked together. The plates, by by the simply the force of virtual photons bouncing against the outside of them, these plates stick together. And it's been it's been shown lots of times. It's been applied to certain things. It's useful in I think the nuclear bag. Like it's what's it called? Let's call it the chiral bag, a model of the nucleon or something. There's all sorts of applications of this thing. There's people who come up with like perpetual motion ideas to do with the Casimir effect, or like you can imagine like let's say you line up thousands and thousands of these plates next to each other and they're all uh separated by a tiny distance oh my you can imagine days. like you've got a huge contracting accordion type thing like you can do all sorts of things did you read this stat with... here what at a separation of 10 nanometers 100 times the typical size of an atom but 10 nanometers isn't actually insanely crazy we can achieve no it's that. not that small right it produces a, the equivalent of one atmosphere of pressure <laughs> That's ridiculous. And I yeah, assume it'll go up there. exponentially. Oh yeah, probably. So you could I mean not that you could this fit a submarine less... in between the two plates, but if you could if you could fit a you know, one nanometer submarine in between the two plates and I mean, then that's... put a bunch of rich billionaires, then <laughs> you could kill them with quantum mechanics. I mean that's the problem. Like you can think of so many applications for this, but because it's so small scale it's really hard. I mean, you could like nanotechnology is an obvious one, right? Like if you can, maybe you can use it to stick things together or to move things. I don't know. This is really cool. But to be, if this isn't actually what my fact is, Henry. I mean, this, this is something like I've known about for a while and it's like a really nice way of, because when, when you're explaining the Casimir effect to someone, you have to get them to buy the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. And then you have to get them to buy the fact that there's all these virtual photons going around, which sounds bullshit and made up and stupid and then you can just show them that all that is true by giving them the experiment where two metal plates stick together and it's like validates so much of so much of quantum physics by just seeing this physical effect which i really like that's why i like it but there's um did you say that um did you see you know liquid helium just while we throw it in yeah you know the whole um that you can't achieve no energy in an area of space and therefore because of the heisenberg uncertainty principle there's always going to be stuff there yeah exactly the reason liquid helium can't turn into solid helium is because it can't go below that zero point energy it's called zero point energy it's the lowest possible achievable energy in a quantum system jesus liquid helium if it 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 can't freeze because if it was to freeze theoretically that would be less than the zero point energy like it would need less energy than the zero point energy to become a solid so liquid helium stays liquid until absolute zero that's amazing that's so cool what happens when you cool it down beyond the point of which it should theoretically turn into a solid i.e. you cool it down to the point where you're trying to get it below the zero point energy but actually it bottoms out of the zero point energy because you can't get anything less than that because what's happening is virtual particles are coming in and exciting your helium atoms right mm-hmm. when you try and squeeze it down below the zero point energy you hit superfluidity which is where superfluidity comes from where it has no viscosity because you're trying to squeeze liquid helium below zero point energy that's crazy so quantum foam 
gives the energy for liquid helium to be super fluid. When you start thinking about it like this, like the the fucking vacuum suddenly seems like a swamp, like yeah. something that should be the most empty possible space. But it's, it's super- covered in energy and dense and. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's super low level. It's really low energy, but it's it, yeah, it's low energy, but it has a it has a meaningful impact. And this right, so Henry, I'm going to try and get you to essentially discover the Shanhorst effect live on this podcast. Does the Shanhorst effect involve, uh, you know, the Casimir effect? Basically, you know, it's, it's firing an... shells from 16 inch barrels and then sinking ships below the sea. No, it's the thing K. Shanhorst came up with in, in like the what is it 90s or something basically um it is it's a logical extension of the casimir effect and i'm gonna i'm gonna try and lead you there because i think it's a logical lead that it's possible for you to make now mm-hmm. and i'm gonna do that by saying how do you think the refractive index so what's the lowest refractive index you can have like how does a refractive oh, index work? Well, it's a vacuum, isn't it? Yeah, the, vacuum, the lowest refractive like, index you can have is one, and refractive yeah, exactly. index is defined off the speed change that light experiences when it goes through different media. Yes. So, yeah. and it's a ratio. So, yes. the fastest speed of light you can achieve is the fastest is is three times ten to the eight, and that is achieved in a vacuum, and therefore. So wait, are you telling me that you can speed up the speed <laughs> of light by decreasing the? <laughs> fuck off. <laughs> Um, well, um, um, okay. So, what Henry's why I need to be on a research team. What Henry's literally just discovered in the space of two and a half sentences, um, (laughs) is that the vacuums are supposed to be, you know, the emptiest of the empty. So, when we want to measure how fast light can possibly go, like the maximum speed of light, and the maximum speed of light isn't just the maximum speed of light; it's the maximum speed of speed. It's like this maximum speed that information can travel in this universe. What the fuck? No, and that's, that's the implications of that are insane. <laughs> that's the speed of light. And Wait, if you create it to what? Let's say <laughs> a one, a one times ten to the one. What's below one petameter, one femtometer gap, and then you shine yeah. light up the one femtometer gap parallel to the plates. Okay, so you could achieve caveats. like an exponentially larger speed. There's a couple of caveats Double. I need to get to. But but yeah, essentially that's what we're talking about. So um, yeah. When, if if we we used to consider the vacuum to be the emptiest possible thing, and therefore light can't travel faster than how fast it travels in a vacuum. What Kay Shanhorst asked is that okay, if we can get this special vacuum, this super unenergetically interesting, the super super you know low energy empty emptier than empty vacuum that you get between these two plates by having selective vacuum modes right if you imagine if you got some light going in between two casimir plates you know usually light is getting you know a little bit of interaction with these photons and these electrons like it barely gives a fuck at all light is fast as hell and it's not doesn't give a shit about anything else that it's going through generally but you know even in this vacuum, there's a few like, virtual things in it. It notices a bit. So if you're going through a Casimir plate, there's a bit less of that. Sure, the light doesn't care much, but it goes a tiny, tiny bit faster than C. C is the constant that we've built, you know, half of physics off of E equals MC squared, whatnot. Speed of light in a vacuum. Light can go faster than that. Theoretically. Theoretically, 
in, in this super, super empty vacuum, light can exceed C. Light can go a little bit faster than we thought was physically possible in the world, which is really weird for a lot of reasons. Because, like, you know, one of the most important things that you learn as a physicist is that the speed of light is the fastest information can travel. Now, the reason that this hasn't completely revolutionized the entire world and why not everyone has heard about it is because the... Including me, uh, fucking hell. Basically, one problem is if you want to measure this effect, you need a measurement tool that can exceed the speed of light. There's actually a paper published called The Impossibility of Measuring Faster Than C Signaling by the Scharnhorst Effect. Another problem is the effect itself would be, I, although I, it's not, it doesn't actually, this wouldn't actually increase exponentially, I don't think, because the effect that the quantum foam exerts on light in general is actually still pretty small. So even if it wasn't there at all, I don't think it would make the massive, massivest difference. Like, I think the Casimir effect can only really have an effect like 10 to the 36 times down the decimal places of light. It can only make it a minuscule amount faster than C. It's it's basically, a, the fact is that theoretically, based on the maths and based on what we've, what we've observed through the Casimir effect, it would be probably possible that light can travel faster than C. There's just no way of us measuring it. Which is sad because you know when you think about it, if if you, uh, if, you, if light's traveling faster than C, there's a whole time travel thing going on, and there's like a whole ooh, what's happening to that photon if it's traveling faster than C? Well, actually, even more boring than that, Scharnhorst himself, he basically just says we should adjust C and redefine C to account for this improved medium. Instead of saying that light is superluminal and exciting and time travelly or whatever. He says we should just slightly change C at like the 30th decimal place, which is such a boring thing to say. Like C is a constant. We found it. We found it through so many different equations and it's like so important. We can't just change it. But I don't know. He, he basically just considers it a slightly better vacuum that now we have to deal with. But I think it's really fucking cool. Oh, God. All right. I'm, I mean, I'm just reading. This is mad for me. It's really mad, isn't it? All right. All right. Several authors, including Sean Horst, says that the yeah. Sean Horst effect cannot be used to create causal paradoxes. AKA time, time travel. travel. Yeah, exactly. Because, I mean, causality is, it's the, it was, it used to be thought, and it kind of still is thought that, like, if you can travel faster than light, you can violate causality because you can see someone, you know, turn off a light switch. Uh, you can see the light turn off before someone turns off the switch, or uh, events can happen at, at different well, you know. goes, I mean if you consider special relativity it goes beyond that the yeah, special well, relativity is defined off C yeah exactly and Which, special relativity is basically what says that you know it leads into general relativity it says that if you move at different speeds you observe time at different speeds it's the thing that says that uh, you know I don't know Interstellar forgot if he goes away and his daughter grows older than him that's yeah, what that is yeah. right and that's defined off C <laughs> being C so if I C think, goes above C then what happens to him then it's slightly He's, different I mean I think if if um the, the only thing is like because it's, maybe this is because it's such a niche case like maybe there's no there's not really an analogue for you know this special Casimir selective mode vacuum in the real world so maybe c is still meaningful because 
is the vacuum energy that can naturally occur in the universe. And maybe that's still a valuable thing to make our equations off of. Maybe we should just stop considering it as the fastest possible speed of light and just think of it as the speed that light goes in a natural universe vacuum in the base, you know, in the default medium of the universe. That's how fast light goes as opposed to our special medium. But it's still really fucks with your head because it everything you think you know about light is based on the fact that it travels at sea in a vacuum god this is really big for me i'm trying to figure out why i don't think i fully understand why you can't measure it i'm going to try and see if i can understand this paper but it's really yeah because i was thinking why can't you just run like interferometry or something like that because if you see any speed changes because like you can use light to measure it it's like you can have two parallel light... light waves that constructively interfere with each other and if one of them starts moving faster then the you know the the pattern of light that you'd see on the other end would look different well, that's mighty clever wouldn't it uh, what did they say here along these lines one could conceive a decreased polarizability in the presence of a nuclei with charges above critical charge oh god that's like a mathematical well the other like thing derivation you yeah you could run them in different um yeah just run them at different polarizations through a polarization filter and if one moves faster than the other then you'll get a different wave on the other i mean there's lots of ways i can think of doing this a direct measurement of v would involve a measurement of time required for propagation over a fixed distance due to any uncertainty in the measured time the value of the velocity deduced in this way is uncertain by a certain amount oh if a photon emitter is switched on at time t0 by exciting an atom, there is a fundamental uncertainty as to when the quantum jump and the photon emission will occur. Right. So, ah, oh, so we can't even, so like the reason we can't measure that it's gone faster than light is that when we've turned on the photon machine, the, t- the, uh, the innate uncertainty between the time we've turned on the photon machine and the time the photon emits is emitted by the photon machine, that uncertainty could completely consume any effects that we want to measure. Oh, no, that's not nice. We could choose T to be the radiative lifetime of an atom. This would lead to a larger value of delta V and for the present argument, we should examine the situation most favorable to the possibility of faster than C signaling. Yeah, I see that. So that so, so they're basically saying, even if we're if you're exciting an atom, there's still a fundamental uncertainty as to when that photon's going to be emitted by the excited atom. It's not a yeah. It's not a theoretical boundary necessarily. No, it's, it's a not. very very practical problem where they've said, oh well, there's a there's an emission uncertainty at the time that it was emitted, mm. and there's an absorption uncertainty, which usually in usual experiments are. Doesn't small matter. enough that you can really ignore yeah, exactly. but because we're trying to measure such a small change in the velocity it's just the, the cumulative uncertainty in emission and absorption they go well okay actually the measurement lies within that uncertainty that that those error bars it sits within it so actually maybe we did get a faster velocity and we measured it but the error bars say that it could still be just the same as speed of light damn it's like the the error bars will never not include C as a possibility. Yeah, exactly. So like, ah, oh, it's so unlike, we just need, we need an impossibly good way to emit a photon. Like, but there's no way of emitting surely a photon without can, exciting an atom, really, is there? Well, surely you can just, okay, 
if you make an experiment, Sam, where the plates run for such a long distance that you would get a big <laughs> enough delta T between an accelerated light and a normal light, then right. you could you could do it. Like there is no boundary theoretically on measuring this effect. You would just need to create the conditions required for the effect over millions of kilometers, such that when you reach the other end, the absorption and emission uncertainties are actually smaller than the time difference due to a different velocity. But it's, you know, that you would, I think actually you'd need like 10 to the 20 meters or something. (laughs) So your experimental tube with the two plates in it, which need to be separated by a consistent amount, would need to be you know, longer than the width of the Milky Way by a big margin. Wow. So do we really uh, need it? No, let's just accept it as fact without, you know, proving Yeah, I want to accept, I mean, the fact that the Katatomer effect, like the fact that we can prove that light, in, in other ways, in other experiments, in other parts of maths, we can prove that light interacts with quantum foam, and we can prove that the Katatomer effect reduces the, you know, the selective vacuum modes. Using those two of two pieces of information, we can kind of intuit that the Chanhorst effect sort of probably happens. Practically, it's not useful, though, because... But practically, it's not useful. Well, at the moment, it's not useful. Well, yeah, light's fast enough, basically. Oh, but what if you put a fucking um, uh, Casimir plate, Sam? What if you put them into an event horizon? You think, like, oh, light could get out? Yeah. That's, That's dope. Mad. Like if you just feed the tube in just to the event horizon, because the tidal forces aren't actually that insane at the event horizon. You could probably I mean, create some matter that would survive on the event horizon. Could you? 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 You're listening to the Substandard Model. 